This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Um, did you get a chance to say that Jim Chalmers clip? I did, yes. Oh, it was far yeah. more sincere than I thought it would be. I thought it would be confected, but actually, yeah, it sort of, yeah. He actually is a fan of hip-hop, didn't you? I didn't know that. You didn't know that he was our hip hop treasurer? Sorry, I didn't know that. I'm not, I, I don't really follow that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the personal music case of our I don't political leaders? The lighter side story. I'm sorry, if you, you know, it's good that you watch Channel 9, but you know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You yeah. do the hard hitting shit, is that right? Yeah, Over at the high, yeah, 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 exactly. Well, the Tupac song that shaped me the most was Changes. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if you know, you know, change. I think that's that's probably. I think that's the best rap song of all time. Verse two gets uh, me all the time. What's that? Verse two. I see no changes. All I see is racist faces. Yeah. Please take me right. to races. Right. And we've got to change the way we eat. We've got to change the way we treat each other. I mean, it's amazing lyrics in that uh, track. Uh, I like the I like the bluntness of it. I, I like blunt speak. CL to the OG. Do it be the OG. Well, look, I agree with you that. This nugget of information, of course, is just something that the media will latch onto because it's like an interesting little twist, little mm. wrinkle, yes. you know, to say hip-hop treasure, which is something we've made fun of before on Serious Danger in the past. But, I mean, this question of Q&A was, <laughs> how, does, how does your hip-and-hopness, mm. your fondness for Tupac, Biggie, etc., inform something like writing the federal budget for but, but, but Tom, uh, for, you've, for you've done enough writers festival panels to know or you know that sort of stuff to know that there's always those annoying questions what's your creative oh, process terrible. right i think yeah. it's high time that treasurers also get subjected to that <laughs> that, that sort of what's your creative process type of question. I, th- I, I think there's not been enough focus on that sort of stuff in the past Frankly, when it comes to the writing of the budget, like yeah, how do well, they get inspired uh, it, and stuff? Yeah, because actually, Paul Keating, the last time we had musical accompaniment to budgets was Paul Keating. He used to listen to Marla, Marla's Fifth Marla's Symphony. Every time, like, every time he needed a break, he'd go into a room, stand for an hour, and, and cry while listening to Marla's Fifth Symphony. Uh, you know, like. <laughs> It, well, yeah, it, look how that worked out. He sold off Qantas, he yeah. sold off the Commonwealth Bank, and he neoliberalised the entire fucking yeah, society like a piece of shit. That's why he was crying. He, he <laughs> had <laughs> wronged his class. He was a class traitor. Listen to Marla, the most hoity-toity of all the classical musicians. And uh, well, what, he, he loved, clocks as well. Didn't he have a clock collection or some bullshit? Love, yeah, but you you can't. The problem is he, he sort of wedged everyone because you can't disabuse somebody who you like you can't sort of criticize somebody who's genuinely from the sticks yeah. for having expensive taste because they've made it. Like if they've made it, they made like good on them. Yeah. You're allowed to yes, buy right. antique clocks. <laughs> it's fine. I don't, I don't give a shit. Italian. And working class people are allowed to like fancy things. That's, yeah, that's exactly. totally fine. That works. Yeah. But like, and look, and people can listen to whatever fucking music they like. And yes, comedians mm-hmm. will make jokes of you, particularly if you are open about the music you like. Scott Morrison mm-hmm. liking Tina Arena is objectively funny, and he should be. And I like Tina Arena, but it's still mm-hmm. funny to imagine Scott Morrison listening to Tina Arena, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. The problem is that this question on Q and A, since <laughs> sincerely believe that Jim Chalmers' fondness for Tupac 
would make him think, hey, you know what? <laughs> there are people from the streets in this country too. So, yeah. you know what? I'm going to keep it fucking real. I'm going to give it dope and sick, and I'm going to give him 285 a day, yo. Bruh. <laughs> out. Uh, no, but I think I think the two pack connection explains the Medicare, no, the pharmaceutical changes completely, right? Because right. the whole change is that you can now go in and get a two pack of your favourite medicine <laughs> instead of one, which halves the price because it's the same price for the PBS. So there you go. That's why he's the best, everybody. That's why he's the best. We now know. See. <laughs> That was, that, was, oh. that was better than any David Spears question that we got, wasn't it? Talk about the Greens, that funny, that bunch of idiots. If you want the doll for life, free marijuana, vote Greens. These people, these Greens, they are snake oil salesmen. They're a bunch of breath bags and a bunch of idiots and i got no time for them whatsoever. <laughs> Frankly, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. <laughs> serious danger to Australia. All right, let's do our podcast. This is Serious Danger, a podcast about green politics in Australia. This is not an official Greens Party podcast or an official Music Party podcast or an ABC podcast or anything like that. It is made help uh, made possible with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff. Griffin, I am Tom Ballard. Unfortunately, no Emerald Moon with us this week. She could not join us for um, circumstances outside her control. But thankfully, I've got a very special guest co-host, the greatest comedian of all time, from The Chaser, <laughs> one of the hosts of The Chaser Report podcast and The Shot podcast, which I just started listening to, and I think listeners of Serious Danger will very much enjoy. Currently touring the country with his show Wankonomics with James from The Shovel, it's only bloody Charles fucking Fur. Hello. How are you going? I was going to ask, can I swear on this podcast? And I fucking can. Yay. You fucking can, baby. <laughs> Lean in. We love it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. You're the second uh, of the Chaser Horde to join us. We had Andrew Hansen a little while ago. We played that uh, sketch that you guys ran on the Chaser, making fun of Greens voters, which was, of course, hate speech. Mm, but yes. uh, we appreciate you working through those feelings and joining us here. What are your, what are your general impressions of the Greens political party? Dallas? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> We've got an hour, so take your time. Should we talk, should we talk about two thousand and nine? Should we talk about two thousand and nine? He doesn't like it. A really boring podcast. No, um, <laughs> so um, no. See, the problem is that I have is that of course I should totally vote Greens. Like everything about my life is yeah. latte sipping in a city, you know, lefty. But. Um, I grew up in a total Labor household. Like, you know, I got dragged along to branch meetings from about the age of five. My sister was a Labor Party politician in, I might say, the most corrupt New South Wales government ever. So he was literally sitting in the same cabinet as Eddie O'Bee, who's in jail, Emma McGill, yep. who's in jail. Uh-huh. Uh, um, lots of other, like a lot of them just got, what was the treasurer who was... Who, who was only mildly corrupt. Um, anyway, tons of them. They were, they were, we don't remember his name. Yeah. You know, if you're only mildly corrupt, get the fuck out of here. You're yeah. not playing with the big dogs in New South Wales politics. So, I mean, I remember I used to go to Young Labor things and sit next to Ian McDonald, uh, yeah. Ian McDonald, and he would, you know, like chat about the glory days of running the anti-apartheid movement in in uh Australia and, and you know, yeah. sort of was considered a goodie. <laughs> like, it's sort of, so my attitude to the Greens is you're all fucked. Like, you know, you, you're worse than the Libs, right? But then I'd sort of go, actually, 
you know, look at the last year of, um, you know, what's happened and you go, I think I'm going to just have to, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm really torn. <laughs> but I've seen, I've listened to you regularly and even then in, in yeah. that, summing up that case, you're laying out all the problems with the Labor Party. Mm. I think that we could have a long conversation about the failings therein of the Labor Party and uh, mm. its shortcomings. But I guess also, and I, I think we covered this when I was chatting to you on the Chaser podcast too, is I, I think you're also not invested in the idea that your political party of choice is going to be a moral bastion of goodness, right? They're going to do yeah. shitty, grubby yeah. things. But if they're fighting for you or fighting for the right things, mm. you know, the ends justify the means kind of vibe. It's sort of like, you know how there's sort of Jews who identify as cultural Jews? You, you, you know right. what I mean? Like where they still eat bacon and stuff like that, but they're, uh-huh. they're Jewish culture. I think I'm culturally labor. <laughs> I'm not a kosher labor. <laughs> and I, I don't, I tend not to vote labor, but I'm like, right. yeah. So does that, isn't it, is that does that uh, metaphor make the cut? Or is it, yeah. I think that works. Yes, yeah. I mean I think you should. Yes, yeah. leave the church and uh, <laughs> treat yourself. But just to be a little bit serious, we, for a long time I always saw the problem with the grains was always that the two, you know, letting perfect be the enemy of good enough, right? Yeah, and um, and I and. I think, I honestly think that part of, you know, some of the decisions that were made during that sort of Rudd-Gillard era were made because the Greens were not as strong as they are now, right? Like actually they came from a point of weakness that if you are internally weak or you have divisions within your party, then you do have to make principled stances to keep your party united, right? You have to go, no, no, well, we're not the Labor Party. We have to... Um, oppose this not good enough scheme um, and let, you know, perfect be the enemy of good enough, whatever. Um, Whereas now I think this new leadership, which is sort of emboldened by having so many extra seats and stuff like that, there's a sort of confidence within the internal operations of the ground. This is my read of it. that They can actually be compromise and sort of go halfway on the that threshold what was it called the the die so we only die you know like the one about carbon what's it called the emission the safeguard the, mechanism the safeguard mechanism yeah they only go halfway <laughs> we so only we die, die a little bit yeah yeah we just die a little bit more slowly than than uh, before <laughs> um and but that's actually that's good. That's what you need in a political party because and it shows that actually the Greens are stronger internally because they don't have to sort of be just pure all the time. They can actually get in there and actually, you know, exercise real power because they're in a position to sort of bring along with them the votes that to get them across the line, even oh, if not every decision's great. That's very interesting. I think I think the exact opposite of that. And I actually think that we might tease some of these themes out in our discussion of the response yes. to the budget and where, where things are next. So we'll, we'll crack on to that in a sec. I should say uh, you are during the show Wankonomics. What does what Wankonomics tell the good people? What, what the hell are you banging on about on stage with uh, James from The Shovel in the show? Well, the the strap line is, at last, a show about late-stage capitalism. Oh, uh, yes. It, it's actually, it's mainly about, it's sort of observational politics, uh, observational comedy about how we behave at work. It's a really fun area. So it, a lot of it's look, just looking at, you know, 
all the silly jargon that everyone uses in email and, you know, right. moving forward, circle back, touch base, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, but the, but it's structured as an MBA. So it's basically about, you know, you do eight units and you, over the course of the eight learn, units, learn how to sort of annoy and confuse your colleagues at work <laughs> divisionally so that you can sort of get ahead in the corporate world. Um, and it, 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 wor- it works as a show. Like it's just so much fun to do because you can see the audience in pain the whole way through because you awesome. sort of hold a mirror up to the audience and show them what they've been doing. <laughs> to their sad, <laughs> pathetic lives. Yeah, to their sad. To their- oh, and we've got this, and halfway through the show we do this how to win a government tender <laughs> um, thing. And uh and and the great thing about that is, so we've had lots of management consultants come along to the show, of course, because it's Wanganomics and that's their sort of life. And um, and the, after the first night in Adelaide when we did the show, because we, we were mocking the fact that, I don't know whether you remember when they were going to put the Aboriginal flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge and it was going to cost $25 million to put a flag yes. on a bridge, right? And so we showed what would go into that tender, you know, develop a mission statement. Well, that's a million and a half dollars, you know. <laughs> develop a purpose statement. That's another million dollars, yeah. Right, yeah. Focus group test that statement. Another million dollars, yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and then they, they, and they were from a consultant firm and they said, oh, you know, that quote, it's a bit thin. <laughs> like it <laughs> should have been like four times that amount. So... <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god! All right. So you see, yeah. people think that oh, it's socialism. There's so much bureaucracy, and nothing would ever work. It's like, what about all that shit? What about the insane bureaucracy that explodes under oh. the bullshit of capitalism, which people have to justify their existence, otherwise they're fired immediately. What's well, going on there? I mean, isn't that the whole point? We've we've come out of a period where, for the last ten years, you've had a, a government that doesn't really believe in government. They right. they just believe in throwing jobs to their mates, and therefore it's all about the bullshit. It's yeah, right. yeah. It, it's actually very similar to socialism if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, worst pay under socialism, though, so that's fine. Yeah. Um, no, everyone gets a good laugh. Uh, everyone's going to get mad at me if I start shitting on socialism. <laughs> Dates still to come: Wankonomics if you're in Hobart, Newcastle, and Wollongong as well. If you want to go see Charles and James live, quick shout out to our new patrons at Serious Danger AU. Patreon.com forward slash Serious Danger AU for just three bucks a month, you can get bonus content. Thank you to Bee Honey Lover Lauren. That's the kind of patrons we get at this fucking show. <laughs> Bee Honey Lover. Bee Honey Lover. Lauren, the nice kind of orc, Deck, Matt, and Peter Reed from my hometown in Waterwall. My dear friend Peter Reed, thank you very much for supporting the show. We love you. Uh, message from Lauren here. She's been a patron since February. She says, love, love this podcast. You guys represent an alternative political perspective to mainstream media in an entertaining way. Keep up the good work. I finally quit the Labor Party. Sorry, Charles. After a regretful stint and joined the good guys. Good on Max. Keep on representing on putting real money into the housing despite Penny Wong's disappointing comments for a housing policy that sounds like it's doing something but we'll really only do a little bit in a few years' time. Sorry, needed a bit somewhere, but yes, solid greens convert here. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for supporting the show. We appreciate it very much. And remember, if you're listening to this episode on the day that it comes out today, we are live on stage at the Good Chat Comedy Club in the Ange in Brisbane uh, with special guests Max Chandler-Mather and indeed Jordan Hickey. That's going to be awesome. Keep listening to the show to experience more wonderful content from that live performance. Wow. You got Max on stage. That's great.
Let's talk about the budget. Last week we had Senator Janet Rice joining me on the show to go through the budget itself and talk about its, uh, you know, it's it's got some good stuff in there, but it's many uh, shortcomings as well. Um, we thought we might talk about how the whole thing has played out politically with you, Charles. Mm. Were you a budget loser or a winner? Did you go through the budget and, and designate yourself in one of those categories? Well, everyone was a winner, Tom. Everyone was a winner. Uh, no, no, but actually, on a, a bit of a serious point is we've been so trained, I think, by the conservative side of politics and the sort of Murdoch, you know, moronism to think of budget and score budgets in terms of winners and losers. It's such a stupid framework to go, oh, well, we've got all this money, we're going to collectively use it for the commonwealth, like that's the whole yeah. idea behind government, and then, oh, well, why don't we just break it down into did you win or did I win? Well, it, it, I mean, <laughs> but that's the ABC, man. I mean, we made fun of right. this show last year when the, the budget, like, but the ABC literally designates everyone budget winners and losers. It's a framing that's been around for at least 15 years. But it's stupid. Yeah. It's the stupidest thing on earth because, like, how do you, like, I, I actually, I personally think that I win out of the fact that, uh, well, actually, I do win. <laughs> I directly win out of the fact that my kids will now be able to be bulk billed at our local GP, right? That's, yes. So that's a win for me. But even if I didn't have kids, I would win as a citizen of a society because people who are under 14 or whatever can now be bulk billed and people who are finding things hard will have easier access to healthcare which is yep. a general quality of life for my society that I live in. Like, like the only losers are the people who don't live in society. You know? I think if you're on the ABC website and you're going through the budgets, winners and losers, you are a loser. No matter what, <laughs> what occupation <laughs> right. you, you fill in, no matter what the budget is in there for, you are a loser. By definition, if, if you're By looking definition. up that article. But, that, but it wasn't just the Fairfax media, like the Channel 9 media also, yep. like their main coverage was this little sort of infographic tab which you'd click around and the only way you could get information was to click whether you were a loser or a winner. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Very normal country. Good media. We yeah. love it. So I'd say in terms of way it's cut through, the general impression would be a kind of lukewarm response, which mm. some might argue is uh, Labor government's uh, mm. motto at this point. Is you know, don't rock the boat. They'd love. They'd frame it as you know, responsible and balanced. Yada yada yada. Lots of people saying mm. nothing to write home about. Uh, meh might be another way to, to sum up the reaction to the budget. On the raw polling, I'm sure the Labor government's very happy. They're up 53-42 on the two-party preferred. News poll had them in 55-45. The primary vote in the essential poll had Labor up two points to 35%. So the primary vote, coalition down to 31%. The Greens steady on 14%, baby. We're coming for you. Mm -hmm. We're coming. We're almost half of Labor's uh, primary vote. We're on the way. Um, just 44% of respondents said they said the budget would be good for the country. Less than a quarter thought it would be good for them personally. I think in one poll, maybe the news poll, 36% were saying that it was going to be worse. They'd be worse off as a result of, of the budget. Mm. Asked which groups the budget would be good for, a bare majority, 51%, said it would benefit people receiving government payments, followed by people on lower incomes, 42%, the well-off, 41%, and older Australians at 37%. But despite that, despite them saying, oh, it's going to be good for people on government payments, only 19% of respondents said they thought that the budget would reduce poverty. 
which is kind of an interesting mm. nugget there. Do you think, is that people seeing through the bullshit? Like they know that the government is giving out some money to the poorest and the most vulnerable, but it's not actually going to you yeah, know, end it, the condition of poverty that, or actually reduce it in a serious way. That was the vibe, wasn't it? it like it was actually a brilliant dog whistle in a way, which was like, we're going to... We're going it, to, it's sort of like, you know how when you do a martini, a really dry martini, you just <laughs> introduce the glass to, yes. to, to vermouth like, or, or is it gin? Which one, which one is it? Yeah. The vermouth, you just introduce it. You don't actually let it touch the glass at all. Right. You just sort of, yep. And I think that that's what they did with the job seeker. It was like, he's an introduction to more money, you know, like yes. <laughs> you can see more money from yeah, here. You, you can, can see yeah. maybe a decent life. If yeah. we did more of this, then potentially you could actually afford to pay your rent and feed your kids, yeah. but, but not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Uh, but I think politically there was, a, I was actually drilling down. I know you're not supposed to do this as a commentator, but um, I did actually read some of the sort of forward projections about what, they're expecting the budget to be in the next couple of years because the whole point is this budget goes into surplus, then it, it'll be in terrible deficit for the next. And that's yep. why there's been constraints. So there's actually no extra new spending on ABC or there's no extra new spending on, you know, tons of the, the, the museums thing, but the museums thing and the libraries thing was actually relatively small amount of money for, for those sorts of sectors. And and that was always a frustration under the last Labor government with the Swan budgets was there was just this feeling of fiscal responsibility all the way through. Chalmers has sort of positioned himself in the same way. The really yeah. interesting thing is that actually the the sort of Ford estimates of what unemployment's going to be are ridiculously conservative. Like they're, they're saying unemployment's about to go up to sort of 6 or 7% um, in the next yeah. few years and that – in inflation will come down, which will reduce the sort of tax bracket creep and stuff like that. And and the, the coal price is going to plummet. You know, like there's all these uh, variables where you just go, they are all conservative. They are all things that will probably end up not being the case. And yeah. the, the Labor Party will end up, oh, just before the election, having all this surprise extra money that they didn't quite realise was there um, to spend in an election thing. So I think actually they've they've done a good job of pretending that it's a sort of Labor, we're giving you money budget, while actually it genuinely being a belt tightening budget. Like it's it's you know, if the if the conservatives have I mean the other conservatives, like the LMP, the, the Liberal coalition people had been in power they would have framed this as, oh, this is a tough budget because it's your first budget and we, we just like people <laughs> suffering, you know, and, and they, would have, they would have got a huge bump out of it. It would have been the hockey bump, you know, it would have been like the cunt bump. That's what it would be. <laughs> what are you talking about? The, the first hockey budget was an electoral oh, disaster. Yes, it was the least no, popular budget of all time. No, no, it wasn't an electoral disaster because it never passed. Yeah, like it's coming to be a disaster. It got a pass. <laughs> they never managed to pass it. Remember, it was so. Yes, yes. All the yeah. harshest measures were defeated in the Senate, yeah. and it was eventually rolled. 
I would say it was an incredible genius move. I think there was no cunt bump. I think people said, you're a cunt. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. No, but that's what they think. They, they And also that's sort of what you then train to believe. Oh, you know, the the libs are economically responsible because, you know, I always, like, yeah, because they're cunts. <laughs> like, yes, and that's how right, you run right. an economy. <laughs> Yeah, great. What a what a wonderful once again endorsement of the political economic system of capitalism. Yeah. The guys really know what they're doing. They're the cunts. Yeah. That's the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like once you drill down to in this polling response to the the budget, sort of specific measures and how people felt about them. Mm. Super majority support for boosted spending on Medicare, of course. And people know how cooked Medicare is. You mentioned it uh, there, Charles. Mm. But it's, that seems to be the stuff that's like cutting through, making medicines cheaper, funding a wage increase for aged care workers. Fair enough. That's all good stuff. Thumbs up to that. There was, according to these uh, polls, 68% support for higher tobacco excise for increasing taxes on on tobacco, Uh, 62% support for taxing gas and oil producers. Now, I think that includes all the oil and gas executives who are very happy with the Mm. shitty tax that Labor has introduced to um, tax them maybe $500 billion or some pittance uh, of their super profits. It's $2.4 billion, Tom, for the gas. But it's not. Yes, over that's over four years. Yes, and but it's, and it's yeah. not. It's not true. Like it, it's bringing forward payments that they would have paid anyway. It's a cash flow right, issue. It's like, I don't know whether you run a small business, but if you run a small business, the fact that you ask somebody who who's going to owe you two point four billion dollars to pay you now rather than ten years time, that's not extra money. That's just you getting no. a cash bump. It's a total bullshit because that's the mineral resources rent tax or whatever it's called, the petroleum rent tax or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that was a piece of swifty thing to make it look like they were cracking down on gas, but they weren't. It's just, it's just untrue. Majority support for extending support for single parents until their kids turn 15, that's 57%, and for boosting JobSeeker by $40 a fortnight, 55%. Sorry, can we just, 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 why? Until they turn fifteen, so what? What are you supposed to do if you're a single mum? Like, what do you do? So you got this fourteen-year-old. I got a fourteen-year-old. What do you do? You know, he's eleven months, twenty-eight days, twenty-nine days. You then just stop feeding him? (laughs) (laughs) What the? Why the? Why fifteen? Like, why fifteen is the cutoff? Like, you can't. And also. Fifteen-year-olds are really hungry all the time. They just get, they get the, the they are growing so fast. Yeah, they they more than ever more. They just like lo- the, they should be an extra locust sort of thing for your free like because you they just eat everything. You like you buy a loaf of bread, you buy a bunch of bananas. By the yep. end of the day, they're gone because your fifteen-year-old or your fourteen-year-old has just been at the fruit bowl the whole afternoon. Well, that's when you get off your fat ass, Charles. That's when you get off the fucking yeah. couch. And stop yeah. smoking your doobies and playing your Xbox and get out there and get a goddamn job. You think maybe the thought is it gives single mothers enough time to sort of find somebody else and hook up with somebody else. <laughs> and to <laughs> well, no single mothers, but as suggested on this show, which I think is a great idea. We thought the Labour compromise was gonna be like they pay for your Tinder membership or whatever to get you out there on yes. the on the on the dating scene to try and that's good, but, but that would be too much because that would be more well, that'd be inflationary, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 57% support for that change to the single mothers yeah, and yeah. 55% support for boosting job seeker. And on the job seeker question, that's 24% neutral or undecided. So that's mm. a whole bunch of people who aren't particularly strong either way. Only 21% opposed that measure of boosting job seeker. Now, 
Again, we've made the critique last week. The increase to job seeker was pathetic and an insult and it's $2.85 a day and people are still living in poverty. But I think that's a really important statistic because we're regularly told by people defending the Labor Party's inability to commit to an increase to job seeker that it's political suicide, that people hate helping out people on welfare and it's very politically um, toxic and unpopular. Even though regular polls from the likes of ACOS and many other you know, poverty advocacy groups is finding that people are actually quite happy and, and there is a widespread social awareness of just how dire these payments are. And this polling would suggest that people are happy to support the, the majority of Australians, you know, recognise the need to increase welfare payments. Mm. I don't know if they'd increase it by more money, whether you lose support, yada, 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 but you could also make the fucking case as a Labor government who's committed to not leaving anyone behind that we need to increase payments to make sure that people aren't living in poverty, for goodness mm. sake. Which actually makes you go, this was a budget that said that it followed through on its promises, right? Like the, the government's been very careful in sort of saying, we actually, we follow our promises. We're not going to cut the stage three tax cuts because like it or lump it, we we said we wouldn't, so we won't, right? Like, and said that all the way through. But the one thing, the one promise that they've sort of been allowed to get away with breaking was right. the no right. people left behind policy. <laughs> and, but it's politically very shrewd because, like, they're the people least able to advocate for themselves. So, yes. you know, like, of course you're not going to bring up negative gearing or something like that. You're not going to break any of those promises because you'll no. get totally roasted. But it's a very shrewd, you know, if you're going to break one promise, do it to the povos. <laughs> wow, you were raised in a Labor household. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very, no. very elbow. Very elbow. No, no insult to your, to your wonderful family, who I'm sure are great people. But also, and I will say that, you know, lots of, Unemployed people are extremely good advocates for themselves mm. and have actually done a very good job of uh, raising the awareness and the salience of that issue and uh, saying, hey, please th- stop leaving us um, dying in, in social poverty. Thank you. But fucking hell, the fight continues. Yeah. Oh, and I, I, yeah, you're right. I heard somebody from the unem- uh, is it the Unemployed People's Union or whatever it's called. Workers' yeah. Union, yep. Mm-hmm. They're really good. Um, and they, uh, and he was making the point <laughs> that actually, one of the things that people on job seekers struggle with is looking presentable enough to get a job. Like literally the letter is so far down, you know, just so far down that you can't actually climb out of it because you just, you can't afford good enough shoes and stuff like that. Right. Yes. And this is what the Economic Inclusion Committee found, Labor's own committee that they formed to tell them what to do Mm -hmm. when it comes to job seeker in the budget. They said, these payments are so low, they're actively stopping people find work because it's mm. not allowing them to live in dignity. And uh, yes, being able to cover those basic needs makes you much better prepared to be a decent human in a job interview, for God's sake. So mm. um, yes, it's a it's a well-worn, uh, it, a, it, a, a, a little bit of irony there, I suppose. That committee was really interesting, right? Because they framed all their conclusions a, as being about... Um, it disproportionately, like increasing the job seeker would actually disproportionately help women out of poverty, yeah. right? Because there's lots of, like a lot of these things are, you know, the burdens fall on women and it would just, it just structurally sort of, it's sort of a two-thirds, one-third split for a lot of these sort of lowest paid um, 
people. And I thought, oh, that's a winning argument. Like they're going to win against, like, because Alvo can't not be the feminist, you know, and they've, it's, they've got a plurality of men and women in cabinet. Like they've got to do the feminist budget. Like that's a that's a winner, right? Because also it would just reset. Like if they they said, oh, we if they came out and said, oh, we're going to increase job seeker properly, we're going to double it um, because of women, right? Suddenly everyone's talking about women rather than job seeker. You win. Like right. You just win that debate. You just reframe it. Boom. Uh, and no one can go, no, I don't, I don't like women. Well, actually, they probably would, but they'd, like, they'd fall into that trap. they go, yeah, the Liberal Party would go, well, we don't like women. <laughs> and they'd lose, right? And so, but, but, so I thought it was just a dead set certainty that JobSeeker was going to like really go up. And then, nah, nah, they even provided no. the f- advice for it. Yeah. Bless your naive little heart. I know, I know. I keep thinking Labor's going to be better. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch Mr. Peter Dutton's reply to the budget on Thursday night? The electric showbiz event uh, that everybody tunes into to find out what Peter Dutton had to say about the budget. No, did you? No. no. <laughs> no didn't. Even researching this this segment, I'm like, I'm not no. going to fucking watch it. No. I, I'll get the highlights. Didn't it? Wasn't it all just about immigrants? I thought it was just about how Labor's going to import four hundred thousand people and. And and over the course of in the next four years, it'll be like 1.5 million people, and that's outrageous. Definitely love the dog whistle. Yeah. Yes, we'll get to that yeah, in one sec. You generally said it was a big spending budget that would f- fuel inflation. Of course, just another sign that even though they delivered a surplus, I mean, I guess maybe it blunts the attack delivering a surplus a little bit, but you know, mm-hmm. just a reminder that your political enemies will never give you credit for anything. They don't care about facts or reality. They'll just say whatever the fuck they want and sing from the same song sheet. So, you know, even though it was a $4 billion surplus, it was still a big spending budget. Uh, he backed some of the government's budget measures, including increased uh, funding for welfare, spending on new medicines, funding for aged care, and a new target for the National Disability Insurance Scheme that aims to save $74.3 billion over a decade. Some might describe that as cuts to the NDIS, but uh, there you go. Anyway, the, the coalition's on board for that stuff. But yes, there was a treasury estimate of 1.5 million migrants over the next five years. He said that would be bad. It would push up prices and make the cost of living worse. It's the biggest migration surge in our country's history. I potentially fact check that. It feels like surely in the 50s and 60s there were bigger surges. But anyway, yeah. And it's occurring amid a housing and rental crisis. Australians are struggling to rent or purchase a property now. Now, I love this because, of course, it is something of a, I'll give it up for Dutton. It's a tricky geek to be the... Mm opposition leader once you've just lost an election and you've been in power for a decade mm. you you can't talk about how truly cooked and shit australian society <laughs> is because you've been in power for a fucking decade so mm. it's like oh wow there's a housing and a rental crisis in this country you didn't realize mm. that maybe it would be good if you guys had done something about that when you were in power you fucking voldemort psycho for god's sake <laughs> I, must, I must say i do think it was very shrewd of dutton to praise part of the budget because that is political death. Like getting getting Dutton's praise on anything is basically <laughs> spelling the end for Alba. But right. Like, and so all that sort of like yeah, there were half a dozen things that he said, Oh yeah, I like that. It's like, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> it's now radioactive. If you just endorse Albanese saying Albanese is doing yeah. a great job, he'll be rolled into the see. week. And I look at, and I think this is the problem with Peter Dutton's whole speech is it didn't just do one thing. Like I reckon the whole point about, as you said, like, nobody watches the reply by the opposition no. leader. 
So you just have to have one thing that you announce and that's it. And he had far too much detail, like, you know, amateur hour just to actually drill down into things. He, yeah, right. Yeah, he should have just had one thing, which is I wholly endorse this budget. Imagine the controversy that would have been. Like <laughs> half the ALP branch members would have just fled the ALP. It would have been the perfect wedge. Why do these political parties get you in for this advice? This is, this is cool. <laughs> exactly. Well, on the migration stuff, he, he promised that his the coalition of incumbent would sensibly manage migration. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate that. He did not name a preferred forecast for the years ahead, and, it, and according to the SMH, making it difficult to consider an alternative coalition policy. Labor emphasizing the numbers are a forecast. It's not an actual target. We don't even have sort of targets. We sort of just just have these general sort of forecast numbers. Um, and this is interesting. Labor's population forecast in the budget is for 27 million people by June 2024. The coalition forecast in the April 2019 budget that we were going to get to that size in 2022. Right. So obviously that's before mm-hmm. the pandemic. There's been a massive surge to sort of make up for the numbers in which we lost during the closed border period of the pandemic. And half of the 400,000 people that expected to come in the next financial year are students. Okay. So obviously this is the foreign students, massive part of second export industry, for God's sakes huge part of the economy mm. um and so yes it's very hard to see exactly what dutton wants to do about that just completely turn off the tap i suppose or just stop these people from coming and learning so there's a lot of bullshit there and you don't need to intellectually engage with peter dutton much mm. at all but no. i will say that sometimes at least we know the argument the scare campaign around more migrants you know where are these people going to live they're a strain on infrastructure they're a strain of resources they're taking away houses they get us they took our jobs etc etc you know obviously that argument has some salience and has been used by the right to you know electoral success in the past and sometimes i feel like the left is maybe a little bit hesitant to engage in it or kind of dismiss it out of hand without having some pretty good answers to a very basic simplistic analysis which says okay more people are coming there are all these strains that our resources what are we to do about that I don't know if you find that, Charles, or what you think, what, what you say when people sort of run those kind of arguments or what do you, what do you think about that line of attack? Yeah, no, I agree that um, the, the Labor Party often feels very wedged and the union movement feels extremely wedged about immigration because it is, it is it, because it's an argument of scarcity, right? Like it's the politics of scarcity. It's this right. idea that, well, there's only a finite amount of stuff right. and – and so, therefore, it's a zero-sum game. And the whole point about immigration is that we know is that it's it's not a zero-sum game. Like, migrants overwhelmingly add to the economy. They add to the productive resources of the economy um, because they often migrate when they're working age, you know, and, um, and therefore they actually expand the capacity of the economy and therefore blah, 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 blah thrive right prosperity blah 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 but there is a sort of there is a kind of truth to to the fear campaign right which is that if you have a government like say i don't know like the labor government that just brought down the latest budget that doesn't do anything at all about housing like literally their policy is to not invest a single dollar in extra housing but instead like invested in overseas stocks and then use that money to buy some houses down the track if it returns enough money. I mean, it's the world's dumbest, dumbest housing policy. Like, and, and also there's a real 
you know, push, you know, like reining in of infrastructure spending. Like I don't know whether right. you saw that, but you know, just before the budget, Labor announced, oh, we found four billion dollars worth of unfunded infrastructure projects. We're setting up a committee to work it out, right? Uh, but they didn't then in the budget go, oh, and here's four billion dollars to fund those infrastructure projects. They just went, oh well, we'll just have to uh, work out what's going to happen with those unfunding, right? So. so <laughs> Like, you know, that's that's a pullback in, you know, the productive, you know, the social resources that go into, you know, a growing population. Yeah. Well, you know, then th- there is a problem with just sort of an open borders policy. I mean, you know, like you, you actually do have to plan ahead and this government is stuck in this mindset of no, 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 like just anything to make sure that housing remains in crisis, anything yeah. to make sure that... We run a surplus, so that's good spin at the next election. Well, you know, I think there's an argument to say, yeah, like that scare, like it runs a risk of Labor actually falling into a trap where that scare campaign actually holds traction because things do feel crowded and busy because Uh, not enough's been done by the government. uh Yeah. You're really seeing this play out of the UK at the moment too. I mean, yes, I mean, housing Mm. crisis is, I think, even worse, or particularly in the capital cities in in um in the UK, um, the cost of living crisis is slightly more acute as well, and the Tories are in serious trouble because they're an absolute fucking shit show, shit show bin fire. So of course they're targeting all their ire on both illegal uh, immigration or people seeking asylum by boats, mm-hmm. but also um, trying to clamp down on immigration numbers, and particularly all the Brexiteers are sort of saying we were promised fewer immigration numbers, we've got to get these numbers down, we've got to get these numbers down as well. So it's constantly pitting off people coming to the country for a better life uh, as victims, either you know those fleeing persecution or the ones coming through all the correct channels, um, but there's simply too many of them. Mm. And it's just this constant idea that if all else remaining equal, i.e. our shitty underinvestment in our own country and infrastructure, then mm. yes, by letting in what millions of people over the next decade is going to be an absolute disaster mm. um therefore you know trust us you can't trust those those softies on the other side of the aisle where the where the daddy party are where it charge and the thing about britain is which is even more stark than australia is you know their economy has stalled like yes. their economy over the last 10 years has it's it, the productivity graphs you know yeah. sort of going up 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 and then about 2010 it just started plateauing there hasn't been productivity growth in 10 years and uh-huh. and so that really is the politics of scarcity that's that's literally right. we've got a, an actual economic problem and we're going to just blame it on unknown foreigners who can't defend themselves because they're not even in the country and um and we'll get away look over there look over there i mean yes. how how did it brilliantly for years here using boat people the most feared sort of <laughs> abstract abstract concept ever in Australian political history. Um, but, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, if the government doesn't sort of, um, and, and I suppose the point that I was going to make is that it's actually a, it's a spiralling, it, it, there's a spiral problem there, which is, if you do stop immigration, I don't know whether you ever tried to check into a hotel, Tom, in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, but I can tell you, like, all the, like, it, it, like there were so many hospitality industries that 
relied entirely on immigrant labour in this country. Oh. That, that, you know, like, it was impossible to check into a hotel. I mean, I know this sounds like the most bougie <laughs> complaint <laughs> in the world. But it's just true. Like nobody had enough staff because there were a whole lot of low-paid jobs that yep. just could not be filled um, without, you know, with two years of essentially no immigration into this yep. country. Totally. Yes, labour shortage, and yes, as you say, immigration overwhelmingly fueling this economy. I think it's the it's the thing underpinning any the anemic growth that we have in this country, right? I think there's a technically a per capita recession going on at the moment. In that, uh, you know, overall wealth per person is sort of going backwards. The only reason we're getting economic growth is is thanks to immigration, really. It's sort of having immigrants come in and grow the economy in a slightly um, artificial way, but yes, certainly mm-hmm. a way that helps us <laughs> run shit and check into our precious hotels. <sighs> But also it, it helps um, push up property prices, which is the most important thing. That's vital. That's yeah. very key. She was approaching police, but it is fair to say at, at a slow pace, she had a walking frame, but she had a knife. I was interested in Peter Harter's response to the budget. I'm not sure if you saw this. This is a piece Why? that he wrote. Why would you be interested in that? <laughs> well, he's an expert. He writes in the newspaper, and therefore his opinion is worth listening to you. Uh, did you see his piece? Labor was always the mummy party. With this surplus, it's daddy as well. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Pretty fucking hot. <laughs> the budget challenged the coalition's longstanding brand advantage as the party that is better at managing the national finances. By reducing a budget surplus, the government will be equipped to rebut the inevitable criticism that it's spending too much money. Now, he sort of goes on to sort of say that, yeah, there was focus group and the stuff that was cutting through was things like increase to um, Medicare and helping out people um, uh, on uh, on government uh, on government payments and sorry, trying to ease the cost of living. These things coming through at focus, group, focus groups that the government ran in response to the budget. Um, and the third most important thing that they knew about was the surplus. Specifically asked whether it was a big taxing, big spending budget, the consensus of the voters was no. This doesn't imply that they were happy with it. There were plenty of grizzles along the lines of what's in it for me. But the point is that the surplus is, or will be, when it's officially tallied at the end of the financial year on June 30th, a roadblock against the standard coalition line of attack. Mm. So Harcher here is trying to sort of say, oh, yes, Labor have done a fantastic job here because by delivering a surplus, they've shown that they're important, responsible economic managers, blah, 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 which mm. seems to be undermined by a resolve poll, which appeared in the same publication that Harcher wrote this. Just 41% of voters think the government has done the right thing in delivering a budget surplus that will ease pressure on inflation. 59% think the government should have used the money to provide direct support for people under cost of living pressures. But mm. that's because they're idiots, Charles. They're like these, these idiots, they don't know anything about Economics 101 and... We can't be helping poor people with the with all the extra money that we have because that wouldn't be the sensible, centrist, responsible thing to do, right? Yeah, but it would, no, but it's very heartening that fifty nine percent of people actually realise that surpluses are bullshit, and yes, uh, and that if if people ta- if your governments take your money, you don't want them to retire debt with that money because <laughs> that debt in it will be inflated out of the way anyway in in yeah. thirty years time. What you want is you want them to spend the, your money that they've taken from you on stuff yes. now, like paying teachers more money and yes. nurses more money and aged care workers more money. And they did a bit of that, Labor, but 
No, it, like the Labor, like fifty nine percent. Like we didn't vote Labor in to go. Oh, let's have a lib. Let's have a liberal budget. <laughs> like nobody, nobody who voted Labor, nobody who voted for a change of government went. Oh, you know what? I'm voting for a change of government to do, to be like the last government. Like no yes. one did that. So what? So this perception and it is, it is an obsession of the political and media classes. The political class is broken again. All this, even the pandemic, hasn't broken this fucking yes. spell. But they obsessed with this idea that Labor has to prove themselves as mm. uh, responsible economic managers, that they are, they have, uh, they're capable of good financial management, they can be trusted with the nation's finances. Yes. And I think there are so many problems with this. First of all, it's always presented through the media as a piece of political analysis. So like, hey, we're not saying this is good or bad, we're just telling you this is how politics works. So the coalition are going to say that they're bad with mm. money and so Labor's doing this surplus thing to try and combat against that argument like it's just this fucking game bullshit as opposed mm. to actually explaining to the reader or, or trying to critique or interrogate these ideas a little bit further secondly Labor were good economic managers during the fucking GFC but at the mm. time when those attacks were wheeled out by Tony Abbott saying about oh we're in the red and you know it's a budget emergency and all that bullshit which was later exposed to be an absolute lie once the coalition got into government and increased the debt, you know, mm. doing the worst thing in the, in the possible world, they delivered. They essentially, through the government intervention and Keynesian spending, effectively saved the Australian economy mm. as the rest of the world was going down the fucking toilet. So, mm. Labour Party should be overwhelmingly vindicated by their performance under Rudd Gillard Rudd in response to the GFC, in my opinion. But all that just disappeared, right? The same kind of debt deficit budget emergency bullshit is still r- rattling around the brains of everybody who works in the Canberra Press Gallery. And it's the most important thing in the world, regardless of the fact that there are 3.2 million people living in fucking poverty. And I think that this is, this is, this comes down to the fact that the last book that anyone read in the Labor Party who works as a strategist was George Lakoff's book back in, what, 2005 or whatever, which is all about the mummy daddy frame, right? Right, and okay. and um and it was very profound. Like it sort of helped Obama get elected and stuff like that. And sort of and his whole thing was you you have to reframe all these debates so you don't talk about like you 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 actually lean into what people think of you as. Like if they think of you as a mum, you don't try and be a dad. You try and be caring and nurturing. But you reframe issues around the style of that people associate with you, psychologically associate with you. For example, don't talk about gay marriage. Don't say, oh, I want gays to get married. Say this is about equality for gays. This is actually a civil rights issue and it makes it, you reframe the same, exactly the same debate into something Uh, that, you know, really makes it a much stronger argument for people who aren't, you know, who aren't gay or don't know a gay, but they believe in equality, right? You know? <laughs> and <laughs> and so, but but I think w- what you're talking about in terms of like, okay, we've got to make sure that the Murdoch press don't attack us for not being a manager, so we're going to have to do a surplus this time, is actually showing that that class of of Labor politician and the political classes in general actually are very poor storytellers. They don't know how to tell a narrative no. beyond what is already there. So they, they keep they they keep on thinking that they have to write their story according to the same rules and the same 
you know, just it's the new chapter, you know, like Labor got elected, same book is being written. Right? And instead Labor has to, like if they actually want to succeed over the next, you know, because Albo's said, oh, I want this to be a long-term Labor government. He's trying to position Labor as the sort of natural party of, of governance in this country. Yeah. Well, he'd better fucking get better at telling a story because because he won't, like there's no point in Labor being there if if there's three million poor people still living under the poverty line in three or four years' time. Like yeah. very soon that'll be like, well, why don't we get the cunts back? You know, like, like they're the same, you know. And <laughs> instead, they've, you know, like, I was going to start telling a story about how actually an economy needs to be run for its people, you know, like, and there's, it, this has happened profoundly well in other parts of the world. I, I think the Netherlands did it. I know Finland did it to, with profound success. New Zealand, in, until the <clears throat> very most recent budget, um, had been tracking measures of happiness um, yeah. under Jacinda Ardern for the last sort of three or four years um, and had really shifted uh, a whole lot of measures. I mean, the problem with Jacinda is she didn't deliver on anything, but she at least sort of was telling a, a good yarn about how she wanted to to do it. Like she was great at the yarn, not so good at the delivery. I, th- I think but- that Labor probably has the capacity to deliver. Like they've got lots of strong ministers and things like that, but... But at the top, the elbows of this world have to be saying, no, 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 we we get into government and we are better managers of the economy because we don't just focus on, you know, making sure Citibank gets their government bond paid back on time in 30 years' time because we borrowed some money and blah, blah, blah. We run an economy f- for its people and therefore we need to tax the rich and and solve poverty because we'll all, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, you know, we are a commonwealth and and what is good for for teachers or what's good for uh, poor people or what's good for other people is also good for me because we live in a society. Like start sort of, I, I don't know what the narrative is, get a fucking expert in, but... But but start actually start <laughs> well, that's the kind of narrative that is echoing through a Greens platform. If I may be so partisan, as a partisan hack to do. I mean, I, again, I think that is a huge strength of that event is like telling a story about what is wrong with our society and pointing yeah. out some very clear. And people might describe it as left wing populism, but trying mm. to you know illustrate some some very basic big picture ideas about how much the rich are getting away with in this society and how much better we could be by redirecting resources and redistributing wealth. And and at the core of that, it has to be about hope that actually, because I think I think Labor. I mean, one of the refreshing things about Labor compared to the Libs is that on the really micro things, like the really small things, there's just tons of hundreds of little things that are just better than they were, you know, a year ago. Right? Like, yeah. like uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Like yesterday, I walked into the Commonwealth Bank to set up a bank account. And the teller was unnecessarily chatty and friendly. And, and it was like, just set the bank account up. But um, he was going, and he was saying, oh, yeah, we've got all this know your customer thing. Like, I, that's why I have to know all your information about what you do and everything. And um, and I went, oh, is it stricter now that Labor's in? Like, have you noticed a difference? And he went, oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've worked in this branch for two years and the moment Labor got elected, it was like April just cracked down on money laundering, you know, and all that 
No, your customer thing. <laughs> and you're going, yes, of course they did because, you know, like for 10 years the government really didn't believe that government should govern properly. Oh, yeah. like, like they just didn't believe in government, you know. And yeah. and at least the Labor Party, like Labor's sort of one step along, which is they do believe that government can be a force for good and that it should be re- well run, right? But what the Greens have is this sort of idea that actually, and you can do really good things with government. Like you can actually be quite hopeful about what, and quite ambitious about what government can achieve. You know, and and what it can achieve now, like you know, in in the short term as well as the long term. So yes, you're right. Lots of storytelling based around hope. Well, and it's it's also just so frustrating because, and I've said, might have said this on the show a bunch of times. The Greens Party of today, this this platform that we have, is a, is is broadly a social democratic platform. It, it mm. would have been pretty bog standard in the Labor Party of the nineteen sixties and seventies. Mm. And and I think you know, at least the thing that's attracted me to the party and informed my politics, and you know, I think is certainly speaks for a lot of young people today, and a lot of people who find a lot of energy around the Greens right now is that the Greens have identified the neoliberal turn of the 80s and 90s, which occurred under Hawke and Keating, as the root of a huge amount of our problems. So we would just mm-hmm. like a left in this country to be fighting for the same things that it was fighting for in the 60s and 70s, because that, that analysis has not gone out of date. Just because the Labor Party made that shift in the, 50, in the, in the 80s and 90s doesn't mean that it was widely correct. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that the correcting, you know, some of those massive handing over of so much society power and economic power to private interests. Yes, it will, of course, will be extremely hard. And no, it hasn't been done since the 70s and 80s, but Mm. we see no alternative but to fight for that, to actually say what you believe in and sort of say this would be better if it was managed, you know, collectively and democratically for the public good and not for private profit. Profit, Mm. You know, I think that's still, that's a pretty attractive story that at least speaks to me and I think pulls a lot of people into what the Greens are on about, you know. Mm. Yeah, but it's almost like Donald Horn is still right about Australia because <laughs> Jim Chalmers had the world's luckiest break for this budget. Like suddenly yep. he got he heard it was about a month before the budget that he suddenly found out. Oh my God, our coal revenue is just going to be so huge that you can announce a surplus if you want. Wow, and. So he suddenly, and that's just luck. That's the lucky country, right? So it sort of means you can, you don't have to make bold decisions. You can just go, oh, okay, well, I'll just keep writing in the same chapter of the book that was there. Surpluses are good, right? Do it. Because he didn't, there was no, the, the, the luck of the natural wealth of this country just right. delivered for him no need to start really changing the narrative. But, uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh well. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just briefly, look, we haven't got much time left on this, but I, we can do sort of like a quick fire here on this point. But the fact that this uh, episode will be coming out on the one-year anniversary of the 2022 election. It's Ooh. been a year since the green slide, uh, which Emerald hates calling it, and uh, I, I like to call it because it annoys her, and we think it's funny. 
But um, we are a year on. There's been a lot of podcasts kicking around in the Australian political space this week. So just summing up the legacy, how we think the Albanese Labor government has gone thus far. And I think what you're laying out there is, is pretty correct. There are a bunch of things, you know, full credit to them. They've got certain reforms through. Mm-hmm. Um, from their point of view, they got the political wins of establishing this 43% emissions reduction target, the safeguard mechanism thing will go through. They set up the National Anti-Corruption Commission. Um, the voice is happening, at least. Um, so you could sort of give them some ticks on that front. But I suppose, I don't know, do you think the story is cutting through? Is the honeymoon about to end? Are people sort of asking what exactly is this Labor government for if they keep disappointing us on so many fronts? Yeah. I mean, isn't the point that they, they've they done it? They've done what they said they would do. Like uh, they, And I think that's the thing that has surprised everyone. We're so used to politicians just immediately breaking all their promises and coming in and being a completely different thing to what they said they'd do. Uh, but the fact that... Alba has to repeatedly explain, no, no, we're just doing it because that's what we promised, right, Um, is sort of like jarring and, oh, I I don't quite understand. Like, so you just, but you, you, and and with all the bad stuff, like, yeah, we ran a really mediocre campaign with very few policies. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what we're doing. (laughs) We said we we promised you mediocrity and we deliver. (laughs) Um, and and I think also you should give them credit. I think politically um, they are completely ascendant. Like I think you have to sort of say things like the voice. You know, I mean, it sort of feels very tenuous at the moment, but um, just at a political level, that is, I mean, a terrible thing to say, but it is a golden wedge, um, regardless of what happens to it, because it just you know, splits T- Peter Dutton away from the Teals in a way where, you know, it just damages that that um, relationship, uh, I would say, almost in, in a generational sense. It's, it's yep. the same wedge, you know, it's the same catastrophicness of wedge that, um, you know, the DLP and the ALP had in the 1950s. Like it's a very substantial um, sort of wedge that's been created by that. Same with the Hobart Stadium. But like, like there's been some amazing sort of political moments of um, of of good finesse on you know sort of things. But I, I think what I would say is what is clearly happening is Labor is trying to establish itself in the centre as a centrist government and the the natural government of power. And I'd argue that I think you're right in saying I think actually what's happening is they're, they're positioning themselves as a sort of centre-right party in a way. <laughs> and, and that leaves an enormous amount of space for the Greens to inhabit not just the left but really the political centre of Australia. Like a lot of what you were talking about, into, uh, like uh, it fascinates me that you're so interested in the polls. Right? Like, I never read down on the issues in the polls. But it's fascinating that, you know, like actually, so what you're saying is, well, actually Greens policy is like 60% of Australians agree with the Greens all the time, right? And he's going, yeah, they, I think that's true. Like, like I think the Greens are the centre. Like I know it sounds bizarre, yeah, to think of yourself in that in those ways because it, it came from a place of sort of tree hugging Bob Browns, right? But 
But the Greens are now, they're running on mainstream issues, housing affordability, um, climate change. There's just nothing fringe about those issues. They, right. they are completely, and, you know, and jobs, like they are just absolutely at the centre Albo's off to the right. I think you guys should be happy with with the first hundred, you know, first year of of the Labor Party because I think you know, like, you, it really does feel like the Greens are the legitimate opposition yep. in this country. Adam Bant has actually proper cut through now. There seems to be a set of you know, like Max and people like that. There's a set of Green spokespeople now who yep. are, are good enough at. Um, you know, playing the media that yep. they get a good run, and then and staring and, down the attacks from the Labor government and the media. Yeah, I would say a savvy game in the Senate. They're playing a savvy game in the Senate, so they have to be listened to. They have to be featured but, in each story, and so the story. You know, they're they're and they're engaging. They've shown they're willing to to also to, to you know compromise and debate. So they're part of the story the whole time, which means they get to tell their story. Yeah. Um, there's a real thing where you go, I can see a future where you're right, like it goes from 14% to 16%, suddenly you're at 18% or something like that, especially if Max and all these Brisbane Greenslide people start teaching other states how to door knock. Yeah. There, I mean, there's something really interesting. A re, that's a repositioning of where Australia sits in the world. It's a it's a pivoting away from a sort of Anglo-American form of economic accumulation which let's face it is failing like the the u.s economy is sort of becoming increasingly economically unstable with their brinkmanship and political system the uk has already fallen off its cliff we should be pivoting to a more european style and an asian style of um you know social democracy basically yeah we could become the asian social democracy like (laughs) that'd be nice Hmm. I also the last thing I wanted to say, and we were wrapping a sec, but I, you know, going over these, researching all these reactions to the budget and stuff, and I think it's important for all greenies or people who are sympathetic to our cause. Keep in mind the way that, that everything the Labor Party will frame is, uh, well, the way they defended the budget, saying, "Hey, we can't please everyone. We can't make everything happy. Uh, that we can't be perfect. We can't do everything we'd like to do." Now, this is just a rhetorical device trying to position anything that is more ambitious than what they're, they're supporting, they're presenting as a government as being out of the question, right? So they're mm. positioning mm. themselves in the sensible centre. So whatever we, we're positioning here, that is all that we're able to do. This is the limits of our political imagination. And mm. it is the job of the Greens constantly to sort of say, that is bullshit. Look at all these resources we have. Look at all this money you're spending over here. We think this is a much better use of people's money and time and resources and or if you increase the revenue, if you tax the rich way more, you'd be able to do far more. So constantly trying to expand the um, political imagination and, and what is politically possible mm. to push the Overton window into, you know, for lack mm. of a better phrase, as, as much as overuse that is. But I think mm. I think um, that's yeah that's very important um, to make sure that the Greens are actually creating space to the left of of the Labor Party or making it clear mm. that. Being more left wing than the Australian Labor Party is a very possible and b very desirable. So I think that's that's an important um, refrain to see there. And I think and I think that yes, we are playing this savvy game in the uh, Senate, but I suppose it all needs to it all really does need to come to something. I suppose, and I guess we are still waiting for this moment in which the Greens 
with as much power as they do, are able to make the case directly um, to the Australian people. And I suppose the other thing is that they will always constantly frame this as it's either this or nothing. Okay, so every time Labor is defending their own policy, they're saying, if you don't want this, if you're voting against this proposal that we have, that is shitty, mm-hmm. doesn't go far enough, or what you want is nothing, or mm-hmm. what you want is what Peter Dutton wants. And again, I think just breaking that constant line of argument is is crucial to the Greens' work as well. To sort of say, no, we can oppose this because this is insufficient and we've laid out a really comprehensive plan and are prepared to negotiate with you on how this housing bill, how this climate bill, et cetera, can be improved. Mm. Um, to stare down those those arguments of like, it's either this or nothing, which mm. the uh, Labor Party is want to do, like we have to resist that mm. because- the political cost should be on the government for failing to get the housing bill through the Senate, as mm. opposed to that political cost falling on the Greens for voting down a housing bill, just as an example. But also I think that you need to play at the same pace that the Labor Party's playing because the Labor Party's not playing at a um, P- legislation by legislation pace. They, they have a plan for the next three years they, they took it to the election and they have a framework for rolling that out and a strategy for rolling that out across yeah. the next three years. And then and then everything becomes up for grabs, you know, as they roll out their next plan. They, they really are thinking in the medium to long term, even if, you know, there's day-to-day chatter and stuff like that. But you can sense that that's, they really do, they're like a steamroller and, and they know that if they just go slowly and methodically, they get most of what they want to do done, right? And right. and knowing, and they know that actually one year doesn't change much, but actually six years, nine years, you can really get quite a lot done, right? And I think the, the Greens have to realise that and go, well, one of the things that you need to be doing now urgently, you know, um, is not just sort of playing the day-to-day, which will probably, frankly go against you in this term of, of parliament because, yes, you've got some power. Yes, there was a mini green slide, but it's not, it's not really threatening. You, you know, the Greens are not really threatening too many other sitting Labor members at the moment, right? But if the Greens started, you know, door knocking in ten, I mean, I'm sure they are, but, you know, if suddenly Tanya's electorate felt really under threat from the Greens, sure. Chris Bowen's is very ripe. I'm just thinking, you know, Sydney terms here, but like there Mac- are... McNamara in Melbourne was very close. Mac- Richmond yeah. in New South Wales. These were, these yes. are very close seats that are, that yeah. are and, real and prospects for the next election. And green strategy of talk to everyone in the electorate, like be, be able to mobilise thousands of people more yeah. into the Greens, then, then that will change. That, I mean, even though that seems like a non-electoral or a non-legislation-based strategy, if suddenly, you know, key Labor Party people start feeling under threat from, Fair. you know, their own for their own li- literal electorates, then then that's where oh suddenly oh yeah, it's not just our way or the highway, there is actually, I mean, there are some good ideas. Yeah, Yeah. yes, you force them into a position. I mean, they can have their three and six-year plan, but I think also if we want the Greens to grow and the Greens win more seats, your plan's going to have to fucking change. And I think that's a good thing to do because the the three- to six-year plan of Anthony Albanese, the guy Mm. who used to fight the Tories now, is going to be a centre-right vision. You know, I'm not going to say it's going to be 
nothing. There will be some improvements for working mm. people, and you know that's that's all fine. That's stuff that we can support. But you know, certainly with the pace and the time frame we're on with with climate yeah. change, the climate crisis, and all the other stuff we want to see done while we have a left wing government in in power. I mean, mm. yeah, of course the Greens are going to go harder and faster and push Labor to do the same. I can't believe we've got to this the end of this and not discuss the new coal mine that was was approved this week. But oh I'll, yeah, see, yeah. we need to get Flipperseck out of her fucking seat because she's approving <laughs> goddamn coal mines. It was a coking mine. It's nothing. Oh yes, no, no emissions there. It's fine. It was coking coal. It's fine. It's, it's coking coal. It was for five years. For five, it's nothing. It's just like uh, it's an extra twenty million billion tons or something. It's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean, which will be much higher as a result of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just a drop in the boiling ocean. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh. It's time for us as a people to start making some changes. Let's change the way we eat. Let's change the way we live. And let's change the way we treat each other. You see, the old way wasn't working, so it's on us to do what we got to do to survive. And still, I see no changes. Hey, uh, thank you, Charles Firth. This has been an absolute joy. Thanks, man. It was lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. Go see Charles and James live on stage in Wankonomics, Hobart, Newcastle, and Wollongong in June. We'll put a link in the show notes for those live shows. Check out the Chaser Report with Charles and with Dom, with a bunch of other uh, wonderful Chaser folks. And the Shot Podcast as well. Dave Mm. Milner, uh, Joe Dyer, yourself, Grace fucking Tame, all regular co-hosts of that pod. Pretty amazing lineup. And Ronnie Salt occasionally drops by. Ronnie Ronnie Salt's dropping Ronnie Salt's dropping by next week as well, so yeah, that's a good that's a good episode to start on if because uh, she's brilliant, awesome. Check that out. Run through the shop website, which is also worth a read, of course. Call to action: If you're in South Australia, shout out to all the Greens members who are door knocking on the 27th and 28th. It's a weekend of action on the housing crisis, talking to people about the housing bill and what we want to do. Um, South Australian Greens members are door knocking and letterboxing in Norwood, Unley, and Dunstan next weekend. They're, they're, they're then going bowling together on a Sunday afternoon. It sounds delightful. Uh, you can always go to the events page of the Greens website to find out what's going on. And if you're interested, and I know this might be a little bit loaded for some folks, but if you are interested in a yes vote for the Voice for, Voice to Parliament referendum, that's my personal position, I just found out there is a website and there are campaign events. They're calling for volunteers. All that stuff is starting to gear up. You might have seen some of the polling is softening around the country in terms of support for the voice. You can go to yes23.com.au if you want to help out volunteer for the voice to parliament. Thank you, dear Charles. Much obliged, comrade. Thanks, Tom. This is a serious danger, Australia.